0: I want to thank all of those who've gone before me this morning. Thank you, Brian, for reading and for leading us in prayer. Thank you, Charles and Ken, for leading us in song. I'm a pianist myself, so I love strong piano playing, so praise the Lord for your gifting. Amen? And I love all of your voices hearing you sing. praises to God. There's just nothing better than the, the divine chorus of saints praising our Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing. Well, this morning's text really brings us to a high point in Matthew's Gospel, and really, to my mind, perhaps one of the four or five peak passages in Matthew, in my opinion. And the reasons, I think, for this are many. For starters, in these seven verses that we're going to spend some time in, we see many things. We see, number one, the identity of Jesus as Messiah and as deity, as God, Number two, we see the, the first saving confession of any of the disciples. We see the first mention in the, of the establishment of the church in the New Testament. And number four, we see the promise of both the authority and sustainability of that church by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so quite a lot happens in these few verses. And really, it is, an, it is incumbent upon us to study out this passage faithfully and mine out all the glorious truths that are contained in it. It's my intention over the next several weeks, Lord Willing, uh, to examine this text, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. That's the, the overarching text. Our text this morning will be a little bit shorter, but I hope that you're willing to dig in with me and, and really uh, examine these verses, because I believe that this passage may just change the way that you look at Christ, at the gospel and at the church. And so again, Matthew 16 is where we are. Now, a lot of movement has taken place in Matthew 15 and 16, and really, I mean almost quite literally in the text here, because Jesus and the disciples, they have crossed over the Sea of Galilee into Gentile territory. They've left Israel, they've gone to Gentile territory, and that's where Jesus heals the daughter of the Canaanite woman, that's where he feeds the 4,000. And then they cross back over again uh, to the region of Magadan, followed by another trek back into Israel to confront the Pharisees and Sadducees at the beginning of Matthew chapter 16. And then verse 5 tells us that they leave again and they're headed back over into Gentile territory. So they're going back and forth across the sea, moving from Israel to the Gentile regions, traveling around quite a bit. A lot is taking place. And by the time we encounter them in verse 13... They have made their way to the Gentile district of Caesarea Philippi, and that's where we're going to pick it up this morning. So, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13, and we'll stop in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, who is in heaven. It's clear that Jesus and the disciples are, are traveling. Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 8 actually notes that they're traveling to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. They're going to, from village to village ministering and doing certain things. And they're on their way in this little journey into all these villages. And it's on the way that He is asking them these questions. Whether or not they're actually walking and talking or they've stopped for lunch or something like that, we don't really know. But it's along the way that Jesus poses this question to them, Who do you say that I am? That's really the main question for us to consider today. Who is Jesus? Now, many over the years have wondered why this momentous occasion, the occasion of the Great Confession, takes place in Caesarea Philippi and not in Israel. Israel, you'd think that that would be the setting for all of this to take place. Why Caesarea Philippi? Well, we have to ask, first of all, where is Caesarea Philippi? We know that the city was built by the Herods, one of the Herods, King Philip the Tetrarch, which is where Philippi comes from. It's nestled at the foot of Mount Hermon, and if you were to even today look out across ancient Caesarea Philippi, you'll see the snow-capped mountains of Mount Hermon. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, so that's where they are, and Caesarea is known for its pagan idolatry. They were an idolatrous region, an idolatrous people. And as the disciples are passing through village to village to village here, they're going to be appalled at what they see. The false worship to man-made idols and the devotion to dead and false gods. It's really a spiritual deadness that takes place because of this rampant idolatry. And so again, we scratch our heads. Why did Jesus choose this place as a location to reveal this great confession? John Chrysostom, the ancient uh, church father, makes the point that the disciples are likely rattled by their last confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees. This would have been a huge showdown in Matthew chapter 16. And it leads them, or leads Chrysostom to believe, that Jesus is leading the disciples far away from Judea. And he says, so that being freed from all alarm, they might speak with boldness all that was on their mind. So Chrysostom thinks that this was actually intentional that Jesus is pulling them away from all of their Judaistic roots and just trying to get them to clear their head. Now, going to a pagan region is not really the best place to my mind to clear your head, but that was appropriate to the Lord to do something very special in this moment. But now here, without the threat of any other opposition, certainly they have the pagans there, but the pagans don't care what they're doing, without any other problem, they're not worrying about the Sanhedrin, the religious Sanhedrin, what they're going to say. Now they're far away from home, and Jesus is going to seize on this moment to pose them a timeless question. And so he asked the disciples in verse 13, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, immediately we're launched into a discussion, an exploration into this designation, Son of Man. What is Son of Man? Now, frankly, the title is a little bit ambiguous. It's a little ambiguous. Well, why? Because in the Bible there are instances, for example, in Psalm eight two there are some instances where the title is referring to a human being. So if you know Psalm 8, you know this. David asks, What is man that you, talking about God, that you would take thought of him, and the son of man that you would care for him? He's basically saying, well, who am I? I'm just a son of man. I'm I'm not anything. So in this context, it's a stylistic way to talk about a human being. So that's one, one way to talk about son of man. However, there's also another usage of son of man. And that is that it's used as a messianic title. A messianic title. In Daniel 7.13, the prophet Daniel, he gets a vision from heaven whereby he testifies, I kept looking at the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. That's God. That's eternal God. He came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the The Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Stark difference between who am I that you would pay attention to me and Son of Man inheriting all of creation and all kingdoms and all of reign and authority. And so what does this title mean? Again, Daniel is talking about a person he sees in the throne room of heaven who is given full dominion and authority over all, all things, and yet Daniel discerns that he just looks like a man. How does that make any sense? How would we see a son of man in heaven with God where no man can go? This is corroborated by Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel one twenty six, where he beholds a person sitting on the throne of heaven, he says, with an appearance like a man. Now, this title, Son of Man, is one of Jesus' favorite titles. He refers to Himself many times in this fashion. And some scholars believe that the reason He seizes on this title is specifically because of its ambiguity. It's a way for Him to speak honestly about Himself as the, 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 the incarnate King who's come to earth in the form of a man. It's an honest, messianic Uh, title with messianic overtones yet it's unassuming enough where it could be his opponents would just say well maybe he's just talking about himself as a man the way David does and so it's ambiguous yet the disciples know who he's referring to they know that he's talking about himself when he says the son of man they know that it's him they know he's using it for himself here and so he poses the question. Who do people say that the Son of Man, Jesus talking about Himself, who do they say that the Son of Man is? Now, some here, we have to see, but He's not asking about uh, those who are decidedly against Him. He's not saying, what do the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and the enemies of Israel, what do they all think? He doesn't really, frankly, care what they think. He's not asking about the opponents. Rather, the question seems to be more in regards to uh, what is the general chatter with the population of Israel that you're encountering, when you go out, when, when I sent you back, remember in, in Matthew, the Matthew I think it was chapter 10, when he sends out all the disciples to go to all the villages and towns and proclaim the gospel and come back, what are people saying? What are they saying about me, the Son of Man? That's essentially what he's asking. Does anybody have any idea who I really am? Verse 14, the disciples begin to recount a, just a mere sample of the popular answers. Some say John the Baptist. Now, there are several reasons for this identification. For starters, that many had heard of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was arguably more popular in his heyday than Jesus was at the beginning of his ministry. John was very popular. People went from all over Israel to go out to the wilderness to see John the Baptist. So they they heard about John, but not everybody had ever seen John. Remember, this is, this is pre-cell phone, this is pre-selfie technology here. You couldn't just send somebody a picture, that's who the guy is. What is he like? Well, I don't know. He just he looks weird, he's got you know, long, long sideburns, and he's got weird clothing, he dresses like with camel's hair and he eats bugs, and I don't know, he's weird. But I can't stop hearing him preach, he's amazing. And so they didn't know who he was. So some believe when they encountered Jesus, they said, well, that must be John the Baptist. So there's, there's one simple ili- uh, explanation for that. There's another reason it existed as well. There was a theory that after the death of John the Baptist, after John died, there was a theory that maybe he was coming back, reincarnate, as Jesus. And actually, Herod believed this in Matthew 14, too. It was more out of irrational fear, though. Oh, no, John's come back to haunt me. But that could have been a theory that that John, after he had died, had now chosen to to minister through this person of Jesus of Nazareth. But again, there's a big question. They don't know who he is. And so, again, some say that he's John the Baptist. But others say that he's Elijah. Now, why Elijah? Why Elijah? Well, the final prophecy in Malachi 4-5, which we looked at back in 2019, if you remember, malachi 4 5 the final prophecy is that god is going to send elijah the prophet before coming before the coming of the great and terrible day of the lord and so god has already told israel that i'm going to send elijah to you and then i'm going to come and so people sensing the fever pitch of the moment they could sense it they could feel it they could feel the birth pangs they knew the end was coming at some point now we have the vantage point of looking back and saying they weren't they were still waiting we're still waiting But they didn't know, is Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, is he, Elijah, coming to fulfill Malachi's prophecy? What's interesting, if you think about this, is that John the Baptist did no miracles at all. He only preached, which is why the connection to Jesus was very clear. But it's interesting that Elijah, like Jesus, did do miracles. He preached and he did miracles. And so you start to see, well, Elijah did miracles and preached and Jesus does miracles and preached. Maybe that's him. So maybe it is Elijah. we don't know. Yet still others said he was Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Well, what's going on with that? This is very interesting. The most simple way to understand this is to really to understand that people who are affirming and equating Jesus' ministry with Jeremiah's ministry in terms of similarity. And maybe that could be. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet who, with a fire in his bones, maybe that's something that characterized Jesus' own ministry. We know that he was not passionless. Jesus was very uh, zealous and eager and, and had, uh, had uh, uh, the way that he spoke was fire. I mean, he preached as, in a way that no one had ever heard before. We know that he wept, John eleven thirty five. So Jesus experienced all of the human emotions that we experience, of course, yet without sin. But it's possible that people could have seen him and say, well, that, that's Jeremiah. Just look at him. But There's another explanation. One rather strange one actually comes to us through the writings of 2 Maccabees chapter 2. Now Maccabees is not scripture, but it is a helpful work of Jewish history. And 2 Maccabees chapter 2 talks about the day when Jerusalem was seized by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And the story, according to Jewish tradition... When Nebuchadnezzar attacked the city and ransacked it, Jeremiah the prophet, along with several others, smuggled out the Ark of the Covenant out the back door and hid it in one of the mountains, in a cave in the mountains off of the, the temple, just uh, on the mountain range just outside of the city. Now, according to, to tradition, there's a, a belief that when God returns for his people, Jeremiah is going to come back and reveal. To them, where the Ark of the Covenant is, bring the Ark back from its hiding place, and there, there will be a restoration of Israel. The Ark comes back, God comes down, and God's people then flourish. That was the belief. That was the tradition. And so many believe that maybe Jesus is Jeremiah. Maybe He's going to bring the Ark back. And we're going to have proper worship in the temple again with the Ark of the Covenant. And then the Lord at that point will come down and return to His people and restore us. Again, just a theory from 2 Maccabees. But if not Elijah, if not Jeremiah, well, maybe he's one of the other prophets. That was another thing they were saying. We don't really know, but he's, he's clearly a prophet. He's clearly speaking from God. And that's what Nicodemus says in John chapter 3. We know that no one can do these signs and say these things that you're doing unless God was with him. And so the popular consensus seems to be that Jesus was some sort of God ordained prophet. And frankly, that's how many people regard Jesus even today. You ask most people, and religious or not religious, Christian, non Christian, you ask most people today, who is Jesus? Tell me something about Jesus of Nazareth. You get a lot of answers, but many people believe that he is nothing more than a zealous teacher or or some kind of a wise, enlightened rabbi. That's the common answer that I've heard in my lifetime. He was a good teacher, he's a good model for us. He was a martyr, he was a leader. But even more religiously minded people think a little higher of him. I mean, even Islam regards Jesus as a great prophet. And so, certainly, even those who are not Christian regard Jesus highly. And so, maybe he's another prophet. But frankly, truthfully, a poll of popular opinion means nothing in answering this question. It doesn't matter what people think that he is. And it's clear, however, that Jesus is challenging the disciples to think through the question thoroughly. Notice he doesn't start off with, what do you think? He says, what are you hearing? What's the the popular opinion? And they're working it through. Well, gee whiz, I don't know. I mean, some people say that you're this and that and this and that. They might have gone around the room and just given their answers. And Jesus would have said, well, that's very interesting. What do people say about me? Now, frankly, the identity of Jesus was a challenge for everybody. Everybody. Again, we have the blessing of looking back and having the revelation of the Scriptures but even in Israel, they couldn't understand who he was. It was challenging even to the Jews and even to his followers at times. In response to seeing a great miracle, the crowd, in excitement in Matthew 14, 33, they declared, certainly you are God's Son. So the crowd saw it, but that was more emotion than devotion. They were responding to the miracle. Oh, well, you, you must be somebody special. You must be the Son of God. Well, then follow me. i got better things to do. You see, like that, that wasn't a declaration of saving faith. It was response. Even John the Baptist had a hard time. John the Baptist, who, who came as the forerunner of Christ, who knew Jesus personally, who was related to Him by blood. Even he knew Jesus, but in Matthew 11.3, after he's arrested, and he's sitting in prison, and he's probably having doubts and fears and worries, he sends a messenger to Jesus, and the messenger says this, Are you the expected one? Or should we, should we be waiting for somebody else? We're putting all of our hopes and our dreams and everything in you. Are you the one that we're waiting for? Tell me plainly. And Jesus responds in Matthew 11 with a litany of fulfilled prophecies to really send the message back to John. Yes, I am who you think I am, John. But everybody was struggling with this question who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is He? At this point, Jesus zeroes in on the disciples. Verse 15, verse 15, but He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Grammatically, the you here is both in the emphatic position and it's a plural word. It's, It's in the plural tense. And so this is meant to be not only emphatic, but it's directed to, to all of them. Who do you all say that I am? Now at this point, I have to imagine, if you're in the room or if you're in the, in the group with these men and Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? You've got to know there's probably some glances back and forth. Well, who's going to say it? And then Peter, oh boy. <laughs> our, our brother Peter. You know, it's, it's hit or miss with Peter. Some days he is right on the money. Other days he's really not. But Peter, who really is, as John Chrysostom calls him, the leader of the apostolic choir. I love that. Peter is their leader and he kind of steps out in front and he's going to take the bullet if there needs to be a bullet, but he's going he's to step out in front and he proposes to answer for them all. Because again, Jesus asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter stands up. So he's speaking for the group here. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered You are the Christ the son of the living God This my friends is what is called the great confession the great confession you've heard of the great commission you could even say there's the great community in acts chapter 2 this is the great confession and it consists really of two parts there's two parts to this the first thing Peter says of Jesus is this you are the Christ the Christ what is Christ? Well, Christ is, in English, translation of the Greek word Christos. So that sounds like Christ. But Christos translates the Hebrew word for Messiah. Literally, it's Messiah. But Messiah and Christ are the same exact designation. There's no difference between the two. So what is the Messiah? What does it mean? Well, the Messiah is God's anointed one. He's the anointed one. That's quite literally what it is. But he, he is the promised king, who was said to come as the Redeemer and Deliverer of Israel. He's known as the Son of David, who is the eternal King. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 points to that, the eternal kingship of Christ. The woman at the well in John 4.25 believed that, that when Messiah comes, He will declare to us all things. So He is un- understood and believed to be the revealer of divine truth. He's a preacher of the Gospel. In fact, Andrew, the first time he meets Uh, jesus and he goes and tells his brother peter in john 141 he says we have found the messiah so even that the first moment that the disciples met him there was chatter he's the messiah we found him but of course as the time moves on and as the opposition increases they're trying to land on the question is he really the messiah andrew you're a pretty zealous guy but are you sure about this are you sure he's the messiah And so Jesus is the expected sovereign ruler. He's the prophet. He's the deliverer. He's the savior. But as we're going to see, as we look at even just Daniel chapter 9, they didn't consider Daniel 9. Why? Well, because it says in Daniel 9, 25 and 26, Messiah the prince, Messiah the prince comes, but he's cut off and brought to nothing. Now, just in a couple of verses from now, we'll get to it eventually here, in the very next moment, Peter rebukes Jesus for claiming that He's going to go and die. He had forgotten Daniel 9. Messiah is not just going to come and deliver and save and be king and all those things He is, but He's also first going to come and die and be cut off and brought to nothing. Daniel is predicting the death of the Messiah. But as soon as Peter rebukes and doesn't want to hear that from jesus how does jesus respond get behind me satan get behind me satan you are not setting your mind on god's interests but on man's don't you dare say that i'm not going to go and die well why isn't that an awful thing to think that our messiah would go and die peter how do you think i'm going to save people there's no other way i'm not saving you from the romans I'm not saving you in some nationalistic campaign. I'm saving you, not only from yourself and from sin, I'm saving you from the wrath of God against you. I can't do that unless I go and die as a substitute sacrifice and my blood is shed on the cross and I pay for you. And then I'm going to come back and take you to myself. John chapter 14. And so these are all the components of the ministry of Messiah. But they didn't see all that yet. He had to pay for sins. He had to deliver. He had to save. And yet again, Peter didn't fully comprehend all the dynamics of Jesus' suffering and His death. But yet, despite not understanding exactly what Messiah is doing, despite all that, he still rightly identifies Jesus as the sole deliverer of Zion, the Messiah, the Christ. He gets it right. You are the Christ. And then he modifies that. He adds a second designation here, a second phrase. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, there's a lot behind this phrase here. To call someone a son of something or someone is really to use a Hebraism, again, a a, a cultural phrase from Jewish culture here, to, to say that they're just like somebody else. So if you're the son of perdition, that means that you're a son of hell. You're just like those who are condemned. If you're the son of encouragement, then you're identified with someone who's loving and encouraging, right? So the son of imagery is to liken one person or one thing to something else. Of course, however, but beyond this, beyond the similarity, we know that the Bible calls Jesus the Son of God because of His eternal relation to the Father. He is the begotten Son of God. He's not created, he's uncreated. But he is begotten, and he's of the same divine substance as the Father. And add to that, Jesus is not begotten to some kind of a dead idol or faulty God like the ones they're worshiping in, in Caesarea. Rather, Jesus is the Son of the living God. The living God. So to call Jesus the Son of the living God is not to consider Him a lesser being. Son of lower than. That's not it. It's to connect Jesus to the living God of all creation. It's to identify the Son in the way that He sees Himself in John 10.30 when He says, I and the Father are one. They're not one in personhood. They're not the same person. But they are one in deity. We believe in one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one of them is truly and fully God, and yet they are distinct in their personhood. That's general orthodoxy, isn't it? And so He is united with the Father, co-equal with the Father, consubstantial with the Father. And so to call Jesus the Son of the living God is to affirm His deity, is to affirm that Jesus Christ is God. He's God in human flesh. This is an earth-shattering confession, beloved. In fact, it was so earth-shattering, Peter wouldn't dare say that in Israel. He had to go to a Gentile territory where they didn't care at all what he was saying, and there was no one around him. He was a little bit safe from opposition to look Jesus squarely in the eyes and say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the disciples would have nodded their heads and said, we believe that too. That's who you are. Beloved, that is a great confession. That is the great confession. The confession of a true believer. A true believer. That's what you and I Believe, if we're in Christ, that He is our Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Deliverer, the Savior. But more than just that, He is God incarnate. We don't worship a lesser being, a created being. We worship the transcendent, immoral, invisible, beloved God who has made Himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Marvelous, marvelous confession. And this confession... Elicits quite the response from Jesus. Look at verse 17. He said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Even though Matthew refers to him by the name that we all know, we all know Simon Peter. Jesus is using his birth name here, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah really just means son of Jonah or son of John. So that's who he is. That's, he's literally the son of his father John. But the disciples, or excuse me, Jesus responds to the disciple and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed in the Greek word is makarios. It literally means happy. We saw that back in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. But it can also mean something more. It doesn't just mean happy. To employ the teaching of the Beatitudes, we see that blessedness is more than happy, but it's divine favor. It's divine favor. When God blesses a person, when He blesses somebody, it's not just that He makes them happy. That's not a blessing. Rather, it's that God sets His love and sets His kindness on them in order to favor them, and that is what produces the blessing of joy and happiness. It's a divine sanction, it's a divine act of God setting His love and preference and favor onto a person who does not otherwise deserve it. And so here we see this blessing is connected to this confession of Jesus Christ as God, which is nothing more than a confession of saving faith. And as we're going to see shortly, this blessing of God is directly connected to and even evidence of His saving grace. Well, how so? Well, it has to do with how Peter came to the knowledge of saving faith. How did you come to the knowledge of saving faith? How did you come to know Jesus? That's a, that's a question for the ages, isn't it? Because here's what we think. If we can just put all the money and the force and the time and the resources and travel a globe and do the right thing. Techniques and the right presentation and I can speak this way and wave my hand this way and if I can just create the right means and use the right means I can get people to confess Christ as Lord and have it be saving. The Lord tells them however Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Flesh and blood, that's a, another Hebraism means mortal man, human being. In other words, no earthly person gave Peter this divine revelation about Jesus. It didn't come from man. And it certainly didn't come from himself. No, it's, it's not as though Peter just sat down one day and just really thought through all the options. And said, hmm, well I've seen this miracle. That's good. I've seen this teaching and I've seen this and I've seen that. And this Bible verse says that and, and mathematically equate, oh he must be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is that how it happened? No. No. He did not arrive at that conclusion that way. After all, 1 Corinthians 15.50 says that flesh and blood, mortal man, cannot inherit the kingdom. We don't come to Christ through human means and human strength. It doesn't work like that. I love what William Hendrickson, the commentator, says. Jesus emphasizes that merely human calculation... Cogitation, invitation, or excuse me, intuition or tradition could never have produced in this disciple's heart and mind the insight into the sublime truth that he had just now so gloriously professed. Or to summarize it with John 1.13, children of God are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We don't become children of God Because of anything that we or anyone else does. We're not born that way. We're born unto God because of God. He must sovereignly, definitively, spiritually act. God must make you understand the truth about Christ and His Gospel. There's no other way. Before you can come and believe it and confess it. He says, only my father who is in heaven can reveal this to you in fact jesus says the same thing in matthew 11:27 he says no one knows the son except the father nor does anyone know the father except the son and then he says this and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him Only the Father and the Son know each other. We know nothing unless the Father or the Son brings us into saving knowledge and an intimate relationship. We won't know otherwise. God must work. After all, if saving knowledge could be apprehended by human means or free will, then surely the Pharisees and Sadducees, they would have heard Jesus teach. They would have seen the miracles. They knew the Bible better than anybody. They would have believed first, right? They should have known better. Give us a sign and it's enough for us. And at a certain point, Jesus says, I'm not giving you any more signs. You don't get it. God isn't revealing it to you. I'm only going to give you the sign of Jonah. I'm going to go and die. You're going to kill me, but I'm going to go and die and rise. And if you don't believe that, you're condemned. If you don't believe in my death, burial, and resurrection, there's no salvation for you. But they weren't. They didn't believe. They didn't understand because it was not revealed to them. Now, some of the Pharisees, it was revealed to them. Some did come to Christ, but not all of them. And I would say most of them did not. But this then leads us into the theological truth here that regeneration, new birth inside the heart, regeneration precedes faith. God must work. God must change your heart. He must change your mind in order for you to understand the gospel and confess Jesus Christ. That's why 1 Corinthians 12.3 says no one, and the best English translation we have of the Greek there is no one, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Unless God the Spirit is working in you and through you, you'll never confess God the Son to the will of God the Father. God must work. God must reveal it to you. As we read in John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father must work. But yet, once you have received Christ by faith. You can't claim pr- anything other, uh, any pride any other way. You can't claim that it's come from you. Ephesians 2.9 says that salvation is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God and not as a result of works. Why? Well, because we would boast. I came to Christ on this day. It was my profession. I believe in Him. I saw my need for the Savior and I realized that I, I want to be with Jesus. I want to go to heaven when I die. Now, I want to be very careful here because some of you, maybe that was your confession. That on such and such a day, you believed. And I say, praise the Lord. If you have professed to believe in Christ, then you are blessed. Praise the Lord. But where did this come from? God had to work in you. God showed mercy on you and praise Him for it. He had to show divine favor. He had to set His love onto you and say, you are going to have a new heart, a new spirit. This is the the this is the, uh, Ezekiel 36. This is Jeremiah 31. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to put my law within you. Write it on your, the tablets of your heart. I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to revive you. And if I do that, you'll confess me. And so by His grace, all who have faith in Christ, we have it because He's given it to us. And don't we praise Him for that? Yes. Yes, we do. And that's why Jesus responds to this great confession the way He does. He had cause to rejoice. And I don't believe for a split second that there wasn't a smile on His face and possibly, possibly, even a tear in His eye when He said, Blessed are You, Simon, son of John. Jesus is rejoicing in this moment. Why? Because He knows The flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter. But my Father in heaven, He's working in you. And all of you in my group here, with the exception of one, all of you have God working in you because you confess and you know who I am. Blessed are you, sons of God. God is working. Amen and amen. Our confession is the first evidence that we have saving faith. And and I've seen it, just pastorally, I've seen it. You talk to a person, they come to church, they're a churchgoer, or maybe they're religious, and you say, tell me about your love for Jesus. And they, well, you know, and they, they sidestep. It's amazing. And you wouldn't think that would happen. But you talk to a person and say, what do you believe about Jesus? What does He mean to you? And a person who has not been saved, who doesn't love Christ, they will dance all over it. Or they'll give you some... Blatant, random answer that they read about on the back of a bumper sticker, but they don't really know. Now, some people can fake it, and that scares me. But our confession is the first evidence. When we examine those for membership, all of you who are members of this church, what's the common thing that we did with all of you? Asked you directly, how did you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior? What is your testimony? Tell us about your testimony. We want to hear it. And then we always ask, how do you understand the gospel? And I, lately, I've been even adding this in. Explain it to a five-year-old. Very simple. The most simple way you can. Don't give me theological verbosity. I don't care about that. How are you a Christian? Well, Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for my sin. And I, I am a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. But Jesus died for me. And I, when I realized that I was a sinner... I confessed my sins to Him. And the Bible tells me if I confess my sins and believe on Him, I'll have eternal life. I'll be saved. Amen. Blessed are You. Because flesh and blood does not reveal that to us. But only the Father who is in heaven. And so even though it is our first evidence of saving faith, there will be other evidences as time goes on. It's not the only evidence of your faith. There are other things, right? A growing hatred for sin. A growing love for others in this church. A growing desire for holiness and godliness. A desire to serve and give and love other people. All these are evidences. Hope in the gospel. Hope in the future. All these are evidences of saving faith. But the very pinnacle of this is our confession. It's the first sign that you've been saved by God's grace through faith is that you believe in Christ, again, by faith. What we're going to come to see is this. That this common confession, this very simple, one-sentence, simple, simple, simple confession, this becomes the basis and the shared confession of all believers. And as we're going to see, this is the basis of the creation of the church. Think long and hard. This is our common connection, isn't it? We're all different. We're all, some of us are really different from each other, aren't we? I mean, a lot of us are friends and I love all of you in Christ and we're getting to know each other and all that stuff, but, but I've often thought about not all of us would be connected in the other parts of this world, right? But what is our common connection? What is our common love and our common unity together? We're, we're together in Christ, aren't we? And even if you and I have different personalities and you might even rub each other the wrong way personality-wise, but if you love Christ I love you. And I hope that you love me too. And I, I'm Expecting that in grace and in kindness you do. But isn't that our common confession? And let me tell you, that's the confession of every believer who's ever lived and will ever live until the end. It's what draws us together. What we believe about Christ determines who we are and how we are to live. It's everything. You are not the sum of your job. You're not the sum of how many children you have, even though you're blessed. You're not the sum of your abilities and your gifts and your hobbies. You're not the sum of your looks and your status. You're not the sum of your bank account. You're not the sum of any of that stuff. That's, that's all arbitrary in the, in the, in the scheme of, of life, of eternity. The most important thing about you is who are you in Christ? And if you are in Christ, you are blessed. And that is is central Christ is central and our confession is absolutely essential I want to read what John Calvin writes here this brief confession he notes he said it's a brief confession but one which contains the whole sum of our salvation in the praise of Christ is comprehended his eternal kingdom and priesthood that he reconciles God to us and wins perfect righteousness, expiating our sins by his sacrifice, that he keeps his own, whom he has received into his trust and care, and adorns and enriches us with every kind of blessing. Amen and amen. And in fact, that actually reminds me of Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to close here. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Ephesians chapter 1. What is this really all about? Again, this great confession being the evidence and the substance of something that God is doing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, I love that. Amen and amen. If you are in Christ, you have been blessed. You might be temporally down right now. You might be hurting. You might be weakened. You might be impoverished. You might be afflicted. You might be downcast. But where is to be our hope? Psalm 42. I love that Brian read that this morning and I always say to myself, when I'm feeling down in blue, read Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why have you become despondent within me? And what is the answer to his troubled heart? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. He is my help and my salvation, is He not? Oh, beloved, if you have the heartfelt, genuine confession of Christ as Lord and Savior and God, you are blessed and you belong to Him by His grace, through saving faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are so wonderful and so righteous. And Lord, even though You declare that we are blessed, Your name is blessed. Your name is rejoicing and happy. And You are the seat of all divine favor. All goodness and kindness and love resides within Your nature. You are transcendent and sovereign and exalted above all. And Lord, lest we dare to come to the throne thinking that it is by our own flesh or blood or someone else's testimony, their efforts, we are reminded by the Lord here that it is not flesh and blood that reveals divine truth to us. Father, it is You. You reveal divine truth to us. And how do you do it, O Lord? Your Word says it is by your Spirit. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 where it says it's the Spirit. The Spirit who gives us wisdom and understanding. You illumine hearts and minds to know truth. And Spirit of God, you are to be praised. You are the one who strives with us to help us to understand. You convict us of our sins. You stir in us a desire and affections for Christ. You work in us and turn the lights on in our understanding. You give us wisdom. You give us discernment. Without You, Spirit of the living God, we would have nothing. And You exist on this realm, at least on this plane, with us, striving with us. Your ministry points back to our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, You are ever to be praised. Because it is in You that we have life. It is in You that we have the forgiveness of our sins. How many they are. It is in You that we have the satisfaction. In You we have righteousness credited to us on our account. In You we have hope. In You we have joy and strength, as Paul tells Timothy, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We have grace in You, Lord, and You are our Christ, our King, and You are the eternal begotten Son of the living God. And our Father, we rejoice in all of this in honor of Your holy name. That You have reserved for us a place seated in the right hand with the Son. That You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Help us, O Lord God, never to forget that although the world should pass away, nations totter, economies fluctuate, people hate us. In the end, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We praise you to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.